Support for NPR comes from ADP. Say you're in HR and a solar flare adds an extra hour to each day. How would this impact business? ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to help your business take on the next anything. ADP, always designing for people. A warning, this episode contains explicit language. It's one of our favorite days of the year, the day we talk about some of our favorite pop culture things we saw and heard all year. What we loved, what we loved about it, it's all good vibes today. I'm Stephen Thompson. And I'm Linda Holmes. And today on NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, we're talking about our favorite things of 2022. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the official Hacks podcast from Max. Join the creators and showrunners of Hacks as they discuss each episode and speak with the cast and crew about the making of the series. Listen to the official Hacks podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. Joining us today is our fellow co-host, Glenn Weldon. Hi, Glenn. Hey, good vibes, Glenn, they call me. (laughs) Good vibes, Glenn. And also, of course, Aisha Harris. Hello, Aisha. Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens. (laughs) Oh, perfect. Yes. My favorite things. (laughs) Absolutely. I am so excited. Aisha, we're actually, we're just going to dive right into our picks. Uh, We do this every year. We're going to start with you. Give me uh, your first pick for a favorite thing from 2022. Yes. Well, it's hard to believe, but Abbott Elementary has basically released two-ish seasons of this great show in this year. The very first episode premiered last year, but then most of it has aired this year. So it's crazy to me to think that we've had so much goodness Mm -hmm. in this package all in one calendar year, more or less. In case for some reason you have not seen or heard of this show, it is a show on ABC. It's created by Quinta Brunson, and it is set at a public elementary school in Philadelphia. It's mostly about the teachers and how they are dealing with a failing public school system that does not provide enough resources for their mostly black and brown kids. But at the same time, it's very funny. It's a workplace comedy. You're getting elements of Parks and Rec and The Office, and it is fantastic. It is very hard for me to choose a favorite moment from this show. So I decided to sort of latch onto a theme that I noticed. And recently, It's Been a Minute, which is hosted by our dear friend Brittany Luce, did an interview with two of the writers on the show, Brittany Nichols and Joya McCrory. I highly recommend checking out that interview. One of the things they talked about in the writer's room was that they wanted to have this sort of generational conflict between the older teachers, the teachers who have been there for a while, and the younger teachers. And one of those older teachers is Barbara, played by the wonderful Emmy, now Emmy-winning Cheryl Lee Ralph. <laughs> she has her mode. She knows what works. And she sticks to it. And Quinta Brunson's character, Janine, is very much, uh, <laughs> she is the young upstart who's very optimistic in ways that don't always gel with Barbara. And what the writers talked about was that they didn't want the generational conflict to be what we've kind of seen this trend of lately, which is, you know, the older characters are all about wokeness and being annoyed by wokeness and we don't get that type of humor here. Instead, the humor comes from and the generational divide comes out of experience and just 
living life more. And I wanted to pick one moment specifically from the first episode of this season, Development Day uh, of season two. And this moment happens between Gregory, who's played by Tyler James Williams, um, who was a substitute teacher and is now working as a first grade teacher. And he has his schedule locked down. He knows exactly up to the minute what every kid is going to be doing. First graders, that's not how these things work. And Barbara knows it. And this moment between them is just a perfect example of how that conflict plays out. Counted for that. Imagining the worst thing that could possibly happen is one of my best qualities. But what if one of the students understands the lesson and another one doesn't? What if a cold runs through the classroom and several students are out for a few days? What if there's a snow day? <laughs> what I love about the way Barbara approaches this is that instead of immediately shutting him down. She just asks him questions, <laughs> questions that he is forced to answer. And it's not maybe the, the funniest moment out of the show. There are other great moments. But I just love the way that this show really takes to heart the idea that, yes, there are going to be generational conflicts and, and differences between older and younger people in whatever environment they're in. But it's nice to see a show that does it without resorting to just antagonism, but also is still funny and sharp. I just love it. And I think that's part of what makes Abbott Elementary stand out amongst all the other comedy shows and the comedy shows about generational divides. This is this is good for me. I, I loved it. Yeah, I suspect that one of the reasons this show is the four quadrant hit it is, <laughs> is no matter which character you identify with, you're right sometimes. Right. <laughs> Not all the time, <laughs> but you are proven correct. Whether you are jaded and this is just the way things are, or you're the person who says, "Let can we try something new? Some of the time, you're going to be right. Yep. All right. Awesome. Abbott Elementary. Thank you very much, Aisha. Steven, you are up next. Well, my favorite movie of 2022, at least so far, I haven't seen them all, is Everything Everywhere All at Once. And we're going to be talking about this movie, I, I suspect, a lot more as we get into Oscars season. But just to try to recap it very briefly, there is a failing laundromat, and there are many, 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 many alternate universes. That does not even begin <laughs> to establish everything that is going on in this very inventive and very chaotic film starring the great Michelle Yeoh. My favorite scene in this movie is one that people talk about for how absurd it gets, but I want to talk a little bit about the emotions behind it. One of the many, many, many alternate universes that we see a glimpse of kind of late in this film is we see an alternate universe in which Michelle Yeoh's soulmate is the great Jamie Lee Curtis, who we've seen earlier in the film as a kind of a soulless, angry bureaucrat. She's a villain in the beginning of the film. She's a villain in the film at various points. But in this alternate universe, they are soulmates. They are lovers. They have lived out their lives together. What everyone talks about about this scene is that they have hot dog fingers. So as an IRS bureaucrat, Jamie Lee Curtis, we see her in a cubicle and she has a carpal tunnel sleeve. So there's a scene where Jamie Lee Curtis, because she has hot dog fingers, is playing the piano with her toes. And in the alternate universe where she's playing the piano with her feet, the carpal tunnel sleeve is on her ankle. And what that tiny detail tells me is that the Daniels, the filmmakers behind everything, everywhere, all at once, have thought about 
layers upon layers upon layers of this movie. It's also this reflection on the fact that even our worst enemies, even the most soulless bureaucrats, have the capacity within them to be our best friends, our soulmates, our lovers. And I think that is such a generous view of humanity that kind of runs through this big, weird, wild, inventive, chaotic film. I so deeply loved and respected the attention to detail that went into putting a carpal tunnel sleeve on her ankle at the same time as you are giving this very, very generous look at a character that we don't like. This film has so much to offer and so much to give us, even if you find it a little overwhelming, even if you find it a little over the top. There's such an undercurrent of compassion for these characters that I just loved. Yep. Now, here's a behind-the-scenes peek. You, Stephen, got your picks into the planning doc first. Yes. Uh, <laughs> which means that, like, uh, this movie is represented. But that's great, because I was going to pick something from this film. You so could throw I. a dart at this film and pick. Is it is it the bagel? Is it the googly eyes? Is it the butt plugs? Everything you could pick is silly and over-the-top, yes, but also has something human that it links to something real, maybe not the butt plugs, but pretty much everything else. <laughs> I mean, they're real. Yeah, they're real. Uh, everything else is, I'm so glad that this film is uh, is on this list. So that's everything, everywhere, all at once. Glenn, you didn't get to pick that one, but what did you pick? On uh, the show Andor, which is a Star Wars show on Disney+, Plus, uh, it's set in the run-up to uh, the first, quote-unquote, Star Wars film, A New Hope, and also in the run-up to Rogue One. It's about the rise of the rebellion that gives rise to the action of people like Luke Skywalker and Han Solo. On this show, there's a schmuck called uh, Cyril Karn. He's played by Kyle Soller. He is a boot-looking toady. He's a worm. He's a functionary. When we meet him, he works for this low-level security firm, but he desperately wants to work for the Empire, which, of course, is the vast fascist dictatorship that runs the Star Wars galaxy. And the very first scene we see him in, he is making a report to his superior, uh, his hilariously uninterested superior. And we can tell he's already going the extra mile, right? He's wearing an outfit that doesn't look like the one everyone around him is wearing. It looks a little bit more like a fit you'd see on an Imperial officer. And that does not go unnoticed. Have you modified your uniform? Perhaps slightly. Pockets piping and some light tailoring. For the record, pockets piping and some light tailoring is when I knew this show was for me, when I knew that Andor was onto something. Because look, it's a big galaxy. You can have your Jedis, you can have your charming rogues, you can have your emperor in his hoodie going the dark side. <laughs> but you still need someone to work the cafeteria. You need someone to do the data entry. You need someone, you know, in the Death Star, they've got those lights that are line the hallways, these long, narrow, like, ovals. Somebody needs to replace those bulbs. <laughs> um, and that's the thing the show gets right. Totalitarianism, fascism, and or is a show about resistance. And some of the most thrilling, you know, moments of it are about when it focuses on the rebellion. But it's also a show about oppression, what it looks like on a human level. And that's why I am such a Karn fan. I'm a carnivore because he is at one time. The saddest, funniest, most insightful thing that the show has going for it. Even though this guy is all too willing to surrender himself to this vast, gray, fascist conformity, there's still a small part of him that wants to stand out, right? To have a little bit of flair, to have something that pops. And that is why, uh, kids, uh, fascism is doomed. Because even <laughs> its most abject adherent, 
still wants to add a little bit of piping. <laughs> I like it. This is a very optimistic episode of this show. <laughs> I know. Well, it is our favorite things. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Glenn. That's Andor. All right. I am standing up for recency bias. Uh-huh. <laughs> this is something that is coming out uh, closer to the end of the year. But I chose the clothing in Ryan Johnson's Glass Onion. Yeah. Specifically, there is a moment when Benoit Blanc, played by Daniel Craig, shows up in what I would describe as a striped beach romper. (laughs) Yes, it's fantastic. (laughs) And it is such a character piece. And as it turns out, it is a plot piece, Uh kind of, because when you come to understand sort of perhaps a little more about about that piece and his presentation and, you know, how he approaches his job, I think that piece really comes into play and is so striking and so unusual. And particularly, you know, when Dan- when you see somebody like Daniel Craig, who, of course, was James Bond and so forth, and he's in that striped romper, <laughs> it gives you that feeling of kind of hot absurdity that I think is always a really, really welcome the costumes in this film are uh, designed by Jenny Egan, and I think that it is part of a larger design aesthetic that I very much admired in this film. I've seen it twice now, and, you know, Knives Out has this very specific rich person aesthetic of the old dark wood, um, big spooky house, very traditionalist kind of architecture. And there's a spin in this because it still is, Glass Onion is still rich people. I mean, I think orders of magnitude richer, but he's a tech guy on a private island. So it's glass and different kinds of architecture. And I, but it's just as complete of a world. I just think it's designed in such a cool way. And the costumes are a big part of that. There's a point where Kate Hudson is in this kind of, again, somewhat plot important dress, Mm -hmm. kind of flowy green dress. They've got this look on Dave Batista that is very like, just like beach. It's giving Jersey Shore. (laughs) Well, exactly. And then like the impeccable appearance of Janelle Monae in Mm -hmm. every frame of this film. Mm -hmm. I think just top to bottom, the look of that movie and particularly the costumes in Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery coming to Netflix, uh, late in December, so perhaps it's there already as you hear this. Yeah, wildly disparate looks, but there's a uniformity. Because what Benoit Blanc is wearing in that scene is basically a Victorian bathing costume, as we <laughs> used to call it. Uh-huh. Um, yes. and, and yet there's the yellow kerchief to, for something to pop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, we are back around to you, Aisha. Tell me your second pick. Well, would it be a PCHH episode in 2022 if I didn't mention Beyonce at least once? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes, of course, I was going to list something Beyonce related because this was her year. This is a great year for her. Renaissance was amazing. And we've talked about it on the show. If you somehow live under a rock, this is obviously Beyonce Act 1 Renaissance. We don't know if there is actually an Act 2 or 3. She claims there is, but we still have no visuals as of this recording. (laughs) Will we ever? I don't know. But I wanted to single out one of the many, many things that I loved about it, which was the transitions on this album. I mean, you can listen to this album in pieces and every once in a while on my Spotify playlist, it will come up scrambled out of order and it just feels wrong. It just mm-hmm. feels wrong. And, and and so I've listened to this album from top to bottom and the transitions are what really makes this just flow and pop. 
It feels as if you are on a dance floor and the DJ has programmed it perfectly for all of the little moments that happen when you're on a dance floor, whether it's, oh, I kind of need to sit down. I've been dancing too hard. Let's slow it down a bit. Let's let's take it back. Or, you know, you're at the wedding and it's time for that first dance or it's time for the old folks to get on the dance floor and, you know, shake their stuff. So, you know, obviously cuff it into energy, into break my soul. That mm-hmm. transition is perfect. But I'm going to play one for you now. It's from the end of Plastic Off the Sofa into Virgo's Groove. Let's hear that. Right before that that clip came in, um, on Plastic Off the Sofa, Beyonce had been doing that amazing vocal performance where she's just going, I'm not going to sound as good as her. It's fine. It's just dynamic. And then it slows down and you start to hear the underpinnings of Virgo's groove, even though we're not even onto that track yet. That whole song is really kind of the mini Ripperton-esque Luther Vandross version of a song. Mm-hmm. And then we move from there into the funky, more Rick James, Tina Marie kind of song. And I just love it because it's that moment where I imagine you're at one of the grown and sexy parties where you've got, the, you know, all the older people, the men are in, you know, Stacey Adams suits or something, I don't know. And they have like the wide hats and the fedoras and the or the linen. They're just shuffling. They're doing a little two-step. And then it turns into a little disco and funk. And yeah, it's just it's just heavenly. I love it. Beyonce put her foot in this and her whole body and soul and the transitions on Renaissance really made me happy all throughout this year. Well, speaking of transitions, I think it is extremely appropriate that we followed Glass Onion with Renaissance (laughs) because those are two projects in which every second, every moment is in its exact right place and has been fussed over to just be exactly right and yet can still feel Mm. (laughs) loose-limbed. Impeccable. All right. Thank you very much, Aisha Harris. Uh, Let's see, Stephen, you are up next. All right. My favorite new reality TV show and really one of my favorite new TV shows of 2022 is Lizzo's Watch Out for the Big Girls. They dropped all eight episodes of their first season on Amazon Prime back in March, and I cannot tell you how greedily I housed them. Uh, They are so fun and so sweet and so warm. Uh, This show won the Emmy for Best Reality Competition Series over mainstays like RuPaul's Drag Race and The Amazing Race. This show upends a lot of reality competition tropes in ways that I found very, very, very refreshing. And to illustrate that, We're going to play a tiny spoiler from near the end of the first episode. Basically, the concept of this show is Lizzo is auditioning backup dancers. uh, And she she has a team of plus-size dancers who join her on tour. They're called the Big Girls. Uh, They're a big part of her wonderfully vibrant live show. The premise of the series is she's looking for a new dancer. And you're just going to, like, watch them get heartbreakingly whittled down to just one winner at the end. Well, at the end of the first episode, she brings up Crystal, who we have seen is a very, very, very strong contender, clearly a frontrunner to win this competition. And she brings up Crystal to the front to talk to her. Unfortunately, you cannot move into the house 
and you have to go immediately to get ready for my 2022 tour. You're not on the show. I'm Lizzo. I make the rules, and I do what I want. So I'm sending Crystal straight to rehearsals. <laughs> she just declares a winner. First episode, I do what I want. And that aesthetic, that idea, that way of approaching this show runs through this entire series. Your expectations are constantly upended over the course of the show. There are still women who do not make the cut. It's not like everybody's a winner. But you get multiple enormously satisfying arcs. I found myself rooting for so many of these women. And it just made it that much warmer and kinder and more satisfying. This is a show that is not looking for typical reality TV drama because that's not what Lizzo is looking for in her team of dancers. She is looking for people who like each other and work well together. And it's still just so satisfying. I loved this show. I can't wait for a season two. I don't care if this show results in Lizzo having to tour with 150 dancers. (laughs) I am here for it. I love this show. Uh, Lizzo's Watch Out for the Big Girls. Yeah, Lizzo is famously very, I don't like drama. And so Mm -hmm. it doesn't surprise me that she would want a show that is much more happy and positive. And people ding her for that. I've heard her referred to as toxic positivity, all these other things. I, I want it. I, I want what Lizzo is is serving because it to me, it just feels like genuine positivity, wanting the best for everyone and not wanting to get involved with petty things. So yeah, makes sense. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, buddy. Glenn, we are up to you with a piece from something that I think some of our our listeners have probably heard of. Yeah, yeah. This is show is for me. The Bear on Hulu is about a high-end chef uh, who returns to Chicago to run his family's, um, you know, meat and potato sandwich shop. Uh, he has to deal with the kitchen rivalries and the pressures of running a business. And the show does a lot of the stuff that prestige TV in the year 2022 Common Era is doing, I think reluctantly. It, you do get the surreal dream sequences, you get trauma, you get mental anguish, yada, yada, yada. I think the show is at its best when it puts us on the line of a kitchen during rush, as it does in the seventh episode, which largely consists of this amazing, impossibly complex single shot that roves around the kitchen as the odors come in, as the pressure builds, as the personalities fray. It's also the episode in which this kind of rumbling antipathy uh, that's been going on all season between the obnoxious jerk Richie, played by Eben Moss Backrack, and the sous chef Sydney, played by Ayo Adebri, she finally gets to go off on him. You waste space here. You are a loser. And that is why you hate that I'm here, right? Because I see you. You're the loser that you are. And everybody knows it. I know it. Harvey knows it. And your daughter probably knows it. Now, on a lesser show, that would be a triumphant moment, a cathartic moment. It would be a dramatic payoff. Because like Sydney, we have spent seven episodes dealing with Richie's big bag of BS. <laughs> uh-huh. But the show is so grounded and so real that that moment is its kind of ugly mm-hmm. because she doesn't suddenly launch into this kind of heightened dialogue that is clearly the product of some TV writer's room back in Burbank. It is not precise and worked over and satisfyingly insightful. It, you know, she's not taking a knife and filleting Richie. She is hammering him. It's a blunt object because that is how humans work. You know, in moments of great rage and resentment like that, 
precious few of us are going to be eloquent. Most of us just unleash. As everybody says, this show is intense. It is raw. Mostly, and in moments like that especially, it is real. Love it. Love it. Thank you very much, Glenn. I took a little bit longer to get into severance than some people did. It took me a couple few episodes to kind of get the sense of what it was doing. Severance is a kind of a science fiction uh, workplace series about a world in which you can scientifically have your work life and your outside of work life separated from each other. That's the severance of the title so that you have no memory of or knowledge of your outside life when you're at work and no memory of your work life when you're at home. The lead is Adam Scott, who kind of plays this guy who's dealing with grief in his personal life. And there's also these you know, people who work for the company who are kind of more aware of what's going on and have a little more control over everything. What I want to talk about today is Tramel Tillman, who plays Milchik, mm-hmm. who is the floor supervisor where the Adam Scott character works. He comes in and at first he just seems like a, a sort of a nice, efficient, but, you know, unemotional, just kind of tells everybody this is what we're going to do today. And then at other times, he seems full of menace, and he's able to sit down and suddenly seem very scary when he starts to talk to them about what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do in this very unconventional workplace. But there's an episode called Defiant Jazz. I promise it makes sense by the time you get there. The workers earn a uh, reward, and part of the reward is that they get to have a party. And so they get to choose some music. And they get to choose from a set of genres, and one of them is defiant jazz. Like I said, when you look at it, it's so strange (laughs) that it kind of makes sense. They choose defiant jazz, and Milchik, played by Tramiel Tillman, starts to dance. (laughs) And it loosens him up in this way that suddenly feels much more disorienting than some of the other stuff that he's done, just because it is not what you expect this guy to do, to start dancing with one of the employees. And I just, I found it to be, you know, there are a bunch of things in the series that are really cool. I love the Adam Scott performance. I love the performances from Christopher Walken and John Turturro. There is much here to admire, but there is something about this performance, which is so specific. And that moment, which is so unexpected to me, I love it, love it, love it. Defiant Jazz Dance. All right. We are back around to Aisha. You are up with your third and final pick. Well, my pick comes from one of my favorite shows, period, of the last 10 years, which is Better Things on FX. This show was co-created by Pamela Adlon, who is a you know longtime vet in this business. She started off as a child uh, performer and has done a ton of voice work in the years since, including on great kids shows of my era like Recess. But this is a sort of semi-autobiographical series. It's loosely based on her life as a performer. And she plays Sam Fox, who is a single parent uh, to three children. And she lives in this house in California that is beautiful. And I have so much house envy. It's, It's just so great. But it's also a house where she welcomes people into her home. And even though she's a single parent, she has a great community around her. And so much of the show is just about those moments of her connecting with either her children or with her children's friends or with her own friends and family. And 
the moment I wanted to pick from the final season, season five, which uh, was came out this year, is from episode seven called Family Meeting. And her oldest child, Max, has dealt with a very sort of life-changing moment, and she's kept it from her mother. She hasn't told her. And so there's sort of this tension as to how Sam is going to find out. And in this scene, Max comes home late at night. She's Definitely inebriated in some way. It's not clear. She's probably had something to drink. And she also probably, she seems a little high at, at the very least. Um, and she comes home and she's just like, Mom, Mom I love you so much, Mom. Aww. I love you so And then at much. one point, she's, she, uh, Max goes into this like, I love you, I love you, I love you. And then she licks Sam's face. <laughs> Mom, I love you. Okay, okay. Oh my, wow. Okay. <laughs> so she licks the side of her, her, her face. And then after that, she says something like, do not die. And so much of this season is about death and endings and how you deal with those things. And also just the beautiful moments of life. And just that moment of her licking her face, just this really tender moment that's both comedic, but also Max has not had the easiest relationship with Sam. It, it just it just stuck with me. I, I keep picturing the licking of the face. It's such a weird thing to do to your mother, but <laughs> it's it's an inebriated choice to make. But it's also I think encapsulates so much of how unique this mother child relationship has been throughout the entire series. All right, thank you very much, Aisha Harris. Glenn, we are coming around to you for pick number three. Uh, the Sandman on Netflix, this show should not have worked um, because you don't get more high concept than the comic that it's based on, which is about immortal anthropomorphic avatars of abstract concepts like uh, death and desire and dream. It's dense. It's mythic. It is goth as hell. The reason the Netflix series works is because, uh, for one thing, its approach to its characters is wiser and more generous than the comic was. The performance of Tom Sturridge as the Sandman, as Morpheus in the central role, really grounds it. But I think mostly it's because its reverence toward its source material is not total and unquestioning. It is measured. So the Netflix series picks its battles. It keeps its powder dry for the big moments. My favorite parts of the comic is every time the fates appear, because the genius of the series is it conflates all kinds of different cultural representations of female power, female magic. So early in the series, Morpheus, the main character, has to ask them a question. He has to summon them. So one of the things the Sandman is about, in a very real way, is rules and rituals. So what he does when he needs to do the summoning, he goes into the dreams of humans and he gets offerings. He, you need to meet the fate at a crossroads. So he finds somebody who's dreaming at a crossroads. You need a hanged man to represent sacrifice and surrender to the greater good. So he finds a gallows in another dream. He finds a serpent in another dream for life, death, and rebirth. He gathers these offerings and then he summons them. I, Lord Morpheus, dream of the endless. Summon the fates. Morpheus. It's been a while. Moments like that are why the series works, because you get the big, I am Morpheus, Lord of Dreams, and they're like, hey, because <laughs> there's the mythic and the inhuman, but it always finds the humanity within it. We get a glimpse of how these immortal beings turn out to be basically like colleagues. 
coworkers who have to have, you know, awkward conversations when there's sheet cake in the break room, right? So they're cordial, but there's a history there. There is no love lost between them. And the series is going to get a second season, thank God. But if it gets more, the relationship between Morpheus and the Fates, which is my favorite thing about the comic, is going to get bigger and loom larger. And I'm looking forward to that. All right. Awesome. Thank you very much. Stephen Thompson, give me your third pick. Well, for almost an entire calendar year, I've been telling everyone I know to check out Somebody Somewhere on HBO Max, which is a series about a woman played by Bridget Everett who moves back to her hometown in Kansas to deal with the aftermath of her sister's death. It is a wonderful, wonderful show about kind of how friendships can form in midlife, about the vital importance of queer spaces. And the scene that I want to highlight is in the first episode of the show, Bridget Everett and the great Jeff Hiller decide to kind of on the spur of the moment to perform together at this gathering. And look, one of the most consequential needle drops of 2022 is Kate Bush's running up that hill in Stranger Things. (laughs) But here is another Kate Bush mid-80s appearance on a TV show that I found so, so, so deeply moving. I changed my face, I changed my name, but no one wants you when you lose. Don't give up you have friends. I just wanted to swim in this show, in, in these very, very sweet, very flawed characters. The late, great Mike Haggerty gives a phenomenal performance as her father, Murray Hill. I want Murray Hill to be my pal. I just loved living in this show. I've already watched all seven episodes several times. It is a great place to visit with wonderful, wonderful, warm, rich, kind performances. I could not get enough of it. It did not get a sniff at the Emmys, and I'm still so mad about that. People Uh really need to check out this show. Bring on season two. All right. Sounds very good. Thank you very much. My last pick. Now, I went round and round about whether there was some uh, multi-award winning thing that we should mention. And I thought, well, I typically get lots of chances to talk about those things. And I just wanted to talk about something that I really, really, really loved, which was The Lost City. (laughs) (laughs) Starring Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum. And specifically, I want to talk about a moment early in this movie in which Sandra Bullock is doing a publicity event for her book. She is a romance writer. Channing Tatum is the knucklehead who has been the cover model for her romance novels and now has his own kind of wild following. You know, she gets kind of kidnapped by Daniel Radcliffe, kind of, and then he has to rescue her and on and on. It's got a little bit of, um, you know, romancing the stone and stuff like that. But anyway, early in the film, for one thing, she has chosen or had chosen for her a purple sequined jumpsuit which she wears throughout the movie as things turn out. And in this purple sequin jumpsuit, she goes out on stage at this book event. And so there's all, there's this audience sitting there, but it's one of those things that they set up like on a temporary stage. And so she has to climb up on this stool. Yep, mount it. Mount it, mount it. Okay, find, find your center. 
And now, the moment you've all been A good romantic comedy is full of little moments that you recognize. Mm -hmm. And this is a little moment that I recognized just her self-consciousness to the point where at a couple of public events that I've done since then, when I have found myself sort of getting into a chair on stage, a couple times I've actually said to people, did you guys see the Sandra Bullock movie? <laughs> and every time there's been a good chuckle from the audience of people who know exactly what I'm talking about, Sandra Bullock in The Lost City has given comfort, as she so often has, to people who feel awkward in various situations. And the fact that she does it in this purple sequin jumpsuit... <laughs> just makes it all the better. <laughs> and so Sandra Bullock climbing up onto a stool in The Lost City is one of my favorite things of the year. Yeah, that's such a great moment. The thing is, is that you don't even need something over elaborate or tight for that to be awkward. If you're short or if you're, if you're wearing flats instead of heels, it is awkward trying to get into those stools. Like, why do they make them that way? <laughs> it's hard. Only worst thing, high director's chairs. Yes. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I love a small moment. So that is my pick for my third thing. We want to know about your favorite things from the year. This was so much fun hearing about these guys' favorite things from the year. Find us at facebook.com slash PCHH. That brings us to the end of our Good Vibes show. Stephen Thompson, Glenn Weldon, Aisha Harris, thanks so much to all of you for being here with me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We want to take a moment and thank our Pop Culture Happy Hour Plus subscribers. We appreciate you so much for showing your support of NPR. If you haven't signed up yet, you want to show your support, and you'd like to listen to this show without any sponsor breaks, head over to plus.npr.org slash happy hour or visit the link in our show notes. This episode was produced by Candace Lim and edited by Jessica Reedy. Hello, Come In provides our theme music. I'm Linda Holmes, and we'll see you all tomorrow. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Your business faces specific challenges and unique opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, custom tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the expertise, strategy, and resources of a top 10 commercial bank, a dedicated team works with you to support your success and help achieve your goals. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. Uh, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.